You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff. Legal podcasts always have caveats, so here is ours. Your other moderators today are national security attorneys who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. You can find more about the Standing Committee online or join our listserv at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. And I'm Yvette. We're here to discuss national security issues in the news and give you critical baseline information. Whether you've been practicing national security law for years, you're a journalist trying to understand the law, or a non-lawyer eager to improve your understanding of national security issues. And I'm Elisa. The ABA Standing Committee is comprised of seasoned national security lawyers and law professors. The committee has spent the past 55 years keeping lawyers and the public informed and aware of the most pressing questions in national security law today. But the best step you can take right now is to sign up for our annual conference. We deliver sober, well-reflected, unbiased updates on the hottest topics in the world of national security law. Give it up for being unbiased! And our conference will feature leaders in national security law's hottest topics. At the end of this podcast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org, on our Twitter at ABANatSec, or on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. So let's get started. All right, folks, in a little more than a month, you can come to the annual conference on national security law. That's on November 1st and 2nd at the Hilton in Washington, D.C., and the time to sign up is now. So how do we sign up, Yvette? Well, you can sign up online by going to the Standing Committee website, www.americanbar.org slash natsecurity, and click on Register Now for the 28th Annual Review of the Field of National Security Law. And it's affordable, especially right now with early registration rates, reduced rates for government and military lawyers, as well as some scholarships, and some great prices for law students. But if people would prefer to call, Nicole? Sure. If you can't register online, just call the ABA Service Center, which is 800-285-2221. That's 800-285-2221. All right, so today we're going to take a look at how the ABA Standing Committee has been in front of some of the most important national security law issues of the past year. Now, many people would like to learn more about foreign influence in particular and the national security laws in this space generally, and they're asking questions about whether our institutions of democratic governance will be able to withstand these sort of constant I guess, incursions, right? Uh, The great news is that there will be a national security conference, as we mentioned, on November 1st and 2nd, where many, if not most, of the presentations and discussions will be on the topic of countering foreign influence. And uh, these panels will feature leaders, thought leaders working in this area, people who are active, have active practices in the government or the private sector dealing with this. So, obviously, The question is, were we really ahead of those issues? And, of course, there's ample evidence that we were. Let's take a look at our cast from October 5th of 2017. It was on the Foreign Agents Registration Act, and our guest was a lovely and brilliant attorney, Amy Jeffress. Uh, And we talked to Amy about the possibility of social media platforms being required to register as agents of a foreign power under the Act. 
this, of course, followed uh, extensive coverage about Russian bots uh, being used on social media platforms. And we single out Facebook, but that's not fair. It was all social media platforms. You remember that? I sure do. And we were way ahead of what happened later. So the conference is going to discuss the impact of foreign interference in social media on our national security. The panel will feature leading thinkers in this area, as well as the constitutional implications of regulating speech on social media sites. Since the time we aired that podcast, social media companies have come up to testify on Capitol Hill about their efforts to prevent the kind of Russian influence campaigns that we saw in the run-up to the election in 2016. The Justice Department's Cyber Digital Task Force issued a report on countering malign foreign influence, and Robert Mueller is leading an investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. Here's an excerpt of that podcast with apologies for our early audio. Let's talk for a second because one of the things that we like to do in this cast is we like to sort of look at the future and look at technology. And, you know, this is statute would be fabulous. There's a guy out there, he's got an idea, you know, he's going to promote some country's interests. But, you know, what we're dealing with right now is the age of the internet. You know, Facebook uh, stories can be seeded, Twitter, so on. You can't get Facebook or Twitter to register as foreign agents if they are basically vessels through which this stuff is somehow getting out to the public unattributed. So can you just, the statute, as it's written right now, it just has certain infirmities, do you see, maybe going forward? It's a great question. The statute does require, to be considered a foreign agent, you have to be operating under the direction and control of the foreign entity. And so uh, in your example, Facebook is really more of a passive recipient of all kinds of fake news and crazy stories on behalf of lots of different interests, but it's not taking money, you know, it's really not operating at the direction and control of those uh, forces that are trying to use it for their own nefarious purposes. Would that be different if it was, as opposed to a Facebook post, a Facebook paid advertisement? That's a really interesting question. So then they're really just posting on behalf of the client that's paying. I'd have to think about that. They, they may. That, that's interesting. If it's in the marketplace and available to lots of sources, then perhaps not. But they have to be very careful about who they accept uh, money from. If it's an advertising products. contract to yeah. target specific Facebook users, fitting a specific profile and age and geographic residence. That kind of activity to me sounds like that would, be an, that would create an agency relationship. Then they're really trying to help. They're taking money to help this entity achieve a goal. Oh, let's, I mean, to your point, and I think that's a good one, all um, internet companies basically right now, everyone thinks Google's free. I mean, they're all aggregating your data. Um, they're all sending it out to targeting advertisers. It's really not free. So that would create an opportunity to target, say, specific groups of people um, and push out a message unattributed. Yeah, there does appear to me to be a little hole here, perhaps. So let's pivot to another issue, which is the repeated leaks of classified information that followed our podcast with Mark Zaid, who is one of the legal experts in the area of security clearances and the litigation. Followed Uh, our podcast, but completely unrelated to our podcast. (laughs) Completely unrelated. That's right. Mark came in for a podcast, which we aired on November 2nd, 2017. He talked about the way security clearance cases are adjudicated and a bit about the difference between whistleblowing and leaking classified information. So we talked to Mark shortly after the arrest of Reality Winner, which was in June of 2017. And since that time, Winner has entered a guilty plea and was sentenced. And we have seen a few more leaks. A few thousand, it seems. But in any event, since that time, uh, a CIA contractor has been charged with also with leaking or passing information. But what is also interesting about Mark's podcast, beyond the fact that he was hilarious and well-versed in the law, 
uh, is that the president has publicly stated that he is going to revoke or will or has revoked uh, the, the security clearances of several former government officials. This was a bombshell, unprecedented. That's right. Uh, President Trump said that he was going to revoke the clearances of John Brennan, former director of the CIA, former FBI director James Comey, and CNN terrorism analyst Phil Mudd. Wow. Mark and former general counsel of the Office of Director of National Intelligence, Bob Litt, who, by the way, is fun with a capital F and brilliant, uh, they have put together a terrific panel discussion for the November annual conference uh, on national security law. So that panel is going to focus on current controversies on security clearances, and it will set out the law on clearances, which branch of government has the authority over the clearance process, sort of all the questions that you need to know the answers for in national security. And some of the questions are, can the president do that? Can Congress get involved? So let's take a listen to Mark and hope we see you at the conference. If someone is denied or has their clearance revoked, so it could be a secret clearance, a top secret we hear the acronyms SCI as well, which is Sensitive Compartmented Information. It's just a, an offshoot of top secret or even secret. If they have a problem with that, and it could be something what you might think it would be like, oh, someone's accused of espionage, so they're going to lose their clearance. But most of the time, it's they're having financial problems, they have a DUI, they have foreign relatives, uh, or they're traveling somewhere that's caused some concern. Maybe they have psychological problems, which is, is very often nowadays, uh, sad to say. And then we go through a process. It, it is administrative almost always. It varies from agency to agency as to how it comes about and how private it is. It's almost always really private. But there are some agencies where technically it's an open proceeding, like at the Defense Department. But because the buildings we're usually in, you need some sort of special government ID to get into. It's not really an open proceeding uh, unless we invited somebody to participate. But from a litigation standpoint, what people would normally think of as lawyers fighting against some other side in an adversarial process, that's not the case. We, we do not end up in federal court unless there is some real significant administrative violation, procedural violation. From a substantive standpoint, the federal courts for the last 30 years have literally said that they're not smart enough. They don't have enough common sense, is the terminology actually, common sense to adjudicate an administrative executive branch security clearance determination. And so, so that we was, never was get there. Department of the Navy versus Egan, Egan right? In 1988, the Supreme Court. All right. Now, we also had the good fortune to have two great minds on our podcast, and they both understand space law, Kevin Promfritt and Henry Hertzfeld. And then, uh, after we had uh, recorded and aired that podcast, on June 18th of 2018, uh, the president announced that we, the United States, are launching a space force. And that some people joked, they laughed, they thought that sounded crazy, but that happened, right? Yeah, um, so it turns out that the Chinese have a space force, as do several other countries now. And so this may be a more of a response to that than the stuff of science fiction. The Diplomat reported this development back in 2014, four years ago as of this reporting. So we'll link to that article in, our, in the show notes to this podcast. Yeah, and that Space Force is part of China's People's Liberation Army, and it's a branch, an elite branch, devoted totally to space operations. Yeah, um, so we bet this raises the law of outer space, because if we're going to have space forces and no law governs activities in outer space, 
Um, this is something that Professor Hertzfeld discussed uh, on our podcast. Space law will be a featured panel this year, and uh, I would say this is a growth area of the law, to say the least. Um, and the need for experts is going to increase. Um, and importantly, there's another aspect of space law, just not just the law governing conflict uh, in outer space, but there's also the surveillance that occurs from outer space. Uh, you all using your GPS, you're getting global, you know, Google Earth pictures for what you need and mapping. And Kevin Pomfret, uh, who's an expert in this area, discussed the proliferation of commercial and military satellites, the amount of information they're collecting on all of us, uh, and the law regarding that collection. So let's take a listen to what Kevin said before we see you at the conference that will develop the topic of space law. Can you, uh, can you give us a sense of how many satellites are up there right now, commercial and not? I can't give, I don't know how many satellites there are, because sure. there are satellites that are looking at space and, you know, looking, there, there, there are uh, several thousand satellites up there, many, many of which, and I don't know the percentage off the top of my head, that are doing some sort of collection of the Earth. Now, NOAA has satellites that are monitoring weather, we have satellites, the Europeans have satellites that are doing the same things, we have GPS satellites, the U.S. has some classified satellites that we don't, we don't know how many there are up there. But on the commercial side, there are number, hundreds, uh, many hundreds of satellites that are now up there collecting information. And, and I should point out that commercial means not just uh, in the U.S., commercial has a particular meaning, but in other parts of the world, there are other countries that are developing um, satellites under public-private partnerships, or their definition of commercial is a little bit different than, than we have. But they're selling that imagery to the commercial market, so for purposes of this, it's it's useful to think of them as commercial as rather than defense. That's fascinating. And to your comment about there being thousands in preparation for this uh, podcast, I located uh, some data that had been published by the Union of Concerned Scientists, not this year, but some years ago, which indicated at that time there were 1,738 satellites orbiting the Earth at that time, 803 of those from the U.S., 142 from Russia, uh, 204 from China, and that the number was rising and that of that number at the time, only 500 were commercial. I rather suspect that's gone up. Yeah, that number has increased. There's a company called Planet that has several hundred small satellites up there, and these are as small as a suitcase. Some are not much bigger than um, smartphones that universities will put up there. Uh, even high schools, I think, have applied to, to launch, and, and because the technology now allows you to, to, you know, the cameras are good enough to be able to collect and do that. now. Are there national security concerns or privacy concerns, or do they have any commercial value? Probably not. But for the students involved, it's a fantastic, you know, learning, learning process, and, and you know, it's a it's a it's a really valuable lesson, and and actually is is good for the government too to sort of develop people who are experts in these areas. Okay, so um, do you see any sort of space race, perhaps not of the drama and scale, but do you see any of that going on at the present time? Difficult question. I think space race is probably not the right term that was used when we were vying with the Soviet Union to go to the moon and show that we had better technology than they did. It's very clear, though, that other nations have spent a lot of money and are developing capabilities in space. China certainly is. India Russia, to some extent, and Russia, of course, has a lot of inherent capability from what they've learned in the past. You know, if uh, the, the, the 
security of our satellites and our equipment in space is certainly of concern. And uh, note that within the last couple of years, really for the first time, people from the uh, representatives from the Defense Department actually are allowed to talk about war fighting in space. But uh, I think at the moment it is more of a protection and defense rather than something we're thinking about as an offense. And I, I would add that if we really got into serious offensive actions in space, it wouldn't be good for anybody because we already have a debris problem in certain orbits. And then we get into the changes coming to Cepheus and the trade landscape. On September 7, 2018, the president announced sweeping tariffs against China. And the new bill that will guide the committee on uh, foreign investment in the United States, CFIUS, was signed by the president after it passed Congress as part of the Annual Defense Authorization Act. The topic of trade in CFIUS was something that we hit on early in our podcasting, and there's going to be a terrific panel at our conference on CFIUS and trade and new developments in those realms at the conference in November. All right, and we were lucky enough to have two great practitioners in this area. Um, you might remember this was part of our series on private national security law. Uh, so we had David Fagan of Covington and Burling, who is uh, one of the longtime established practitioners in CFIUS, and then Chris Tamura of Gibson Dunn and Crutcher, who is really an expert on uh, export regulations. And both of them highlighted a road ahead that is now unfolding before our eyes. Let's take a listen. That seems like a menace to national right. well, security. Well, the French have defined yogurt as not <laughs> crucial to national security, so it could be, right? Um, the Italians have defined dairy farmers as crucial to national security, so you never know. Um, but um, if if those parties, if the seller and if the U.S. business and, and the acquirer wanted to file that transaction with CFIUS, it would be reviewed by CFIUS. They'd have jurisdiction over it. Um, those transactions generally are not filed with CFIUS, and CFIUS generally does not review an acquisition of an ice cream factory in Vermont by a Canadian company. The reason for that is because CFIUS' authority to act is tied to national security. While they have very broad authority for jurisdictional purposes, the actual authority to take action is very narrowly focused on whether the transaction of the issue would threaten to impair U.S. national security. Um, and for that reason, the vast majority of transactions that involve foreign persons acquiring a control of a U.S. business are never filed with CFIUS. Um, and the statute was intentionally drafted that way, and the regulations were intentionally drafted that way, because as a policy matter, the U.S. benefits from the attraction of capital into the U.S. to grow and develop the economy and to invest. Um, and so for, for decades now, we have not wanted to create barriers to that, and we have only wanted a foreign investment review process to be able, that's, that's broad, like CFIUS, to be able to take action where truly necessary to protect the national security, otherwise foreign investment should be able to proceed. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's been an interesting time to be a lawyer in this space because really for the last nine years or so, right, eight years or so, there's been a huge burst of energy actually and focus on export control. There was the export uh, control reform initiative that the Obama administration led. And uh, it was, a, a, I think in many respects, a very successful effort. They spent a long period of time uh, the idea behind it was to put 
higher fences around smaller yards. Uh, so basically control <laughs> control those items that really needed to be controlled and to release certain other things from, from, from control. Uh, they did a lot of that. They harmonized definitions between the different agencies. So uh, when you say export in the EAR context, it means the same thing uh, in the uh, ITAR context. Those kinds of things made it, I think, somewhat easier for people to comply with the regulations in this space. The last step, though, um, so they got through uh, really kind of two phases. The third phase uh, was to make things a lot easier, I think, for clients like mine. Uh, it was The idea was to create a single licensing process and a single agency and a single technology platform that the agencies could use to share information about proposed exports. And that was in the works at the end of the Obama administration, and I think the people who are still focused on the, that are still trying to make it work. But uh, with there's not really a lot of direction right now from the current administration on what to do in that space, whether they're going to try to continue something that Obama started, whether they want to go back to the drawing board. And unfortunately, Congress has been kind of preoccupied with uh, other things as of late. So there's not a lot of uh, emphasis right now on this. And actually, that was those last steps, the kind of creating a single agency or creating a single control list, those are things that are going to require uh, legislative acts. Congress does have to get together and actually think, ah, oh, this would be a good time to reform the export control system, which I think is probably about 19 or 20 on the list of priorities right now. Gosh, we were ahead of things. You know, I sometimes think the standing committee, it must be comprised of, you know, people who, you know, aren't ahead on these issues. And then every day and every time I deal with the committee, I see a circumstance in which that is not the case. They're way out front. And if you take a listen to our podcast, you'll see that we were way ahead on these issues, number one. And what you hear at the conference is going to put you ahead on these issues. So we will be sure to drop a link to that registration for the conference in the notes to this podcast so that current national security attorneys or aspiring national security attorneys can check it out there. All right, so just to recap, the conference is on November 1st and 2nd. It's here in Washington, D.C., the hub and center of national security law. We have discounted rates for early registrants, so you want to take advantage of that. The drop-dead date for early registration is October 19th. Uh, And we hope to meet our listeners at the conference. So while you're waiting, anticipating the November 1st and 2nd conference, thank you for listening to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security of the American Bar Association. Tune in again for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff and have to pop vitamin D all day, Or you're just smart enough to know that national security law gives you a front row seat to history. You don't want to sit on the sidelines or watch life from a distance. Well, now, stating the obvious, you can show up at the conference and take one step toward growing your knowledge of national security law, and you'd be up and off of the sidelines. But don't forget to join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And remember, we're glad you're listening. We're glad you're following us on Twitter, but hey, social networking isn't really networking. You should also show up, like at the conference. So we'll see you on November first. Yeah, we mentioned and that we second. want you to come to the conference. Show up. We'll have coffee. <laughs> and check us out at AmericanBar.org/NatSecurity. Follow us on Twitter at ABANatSec, or find us on Facebook. From all of us here, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time at the conference. <laughs> <laughs>
the views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.